Today, it's going to be all about Jesus. That's what really every Sunday is all about for us here at Valleytown. Um, if you'd like a Bible, uh, right now they're going to walk around with some Bibles. You can just slip your hand up and they will get one to you for you to take home. That's our gift to you. Uh, feel free to take that and read it. So maybe you're here this morning because someone invited you, someone you know, asked you to come and you, you wanted to be nice and so you're here and you're not exactly sure where you land when it comes to the Bible or when it comes to Jesus or or maybe the church, I just want to say, welcome. You know, it doesn't matter where you are right now on your faith journey, we welcome you here. And we're really glad that you're here. And this is a good place for you to be if you're going to be exploring those things. This morning, um, we're going to be talking about Jesus, but not in the traditional way. We're going to actually be going back and looking at several stories early on in the Bible that occur before Jesus walks on this earth. And we're going to see how they point us to Jesus. So basically, um, just to kind of prepare you, the Bible says some things that are pretty hard to, to believe if you're not yet convinced of its authenticity. The Bible is going to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came down to earth as a man, that he walked on this earth, and that he was sinless. That he never sinned, he never went his own way. He always obeyed the Father perfectly. And then an innocent man, he was condemned to die. And he was crucified on a cross and he was buried. And three days later, he rose. And he didn't just like come back in spirit, he rose bodily. He walked out of the grave. And that can be hard to wrap your mind around, but it is true. And so... The Bible is going to say some things that if you aren't ready to embrace all of it, you know what? That's okay. We're really glad that you're here. And this is a great place for you to be as you explore those things. So um, I'm just going to be up front with you this morning. I have an agenda. Um, Actually, any preacher that tells you that they don't have an agenda is either lying or not a very good preacher. Okay? Um, I do have an agenda. But I'll say this, I don't want anything from you. This morning, I simply want something for you. And what I want for you is this. I want you to see Jesus in a whole new light. That's it. That's my whole agenda. When you walk out of here, I want you thinking about Jesus. And a week from now, I want you still thinking about Jesus. And a month from now, I want you still thinking about Jesus. And the reason is because when you get captivated by Jesus, he changes you. Okay? When you see the real Jesus, you will be captivated by him. If you've not yet been captivated by Jesus, then I would argue it's because you've not yet seen the real Jesus. And today, my goal, my whole agenda is to show you Jesus. I want you to see him in a whole new light. So if you'll just do me this one favor... If you'll just be willing to take another look at Jesus, that's all I want from you. That's, that's it. And we're going to take a look at the fact that it's always been about him. It's always been about him. See, I've been captivated by Jesus. And there are many people in this church 
who have seen the real Jesus and been captivated by him, and he has completely and radically changed their lives. And so this is very real to me, and um, I'm passionate about it. The Bible is a compilation of many, many ancient documents, historical documents. There are actually um, about 40 different authors all total that wrote the different books of the Bible. And these books were written over a period of about 1,700 years. Okay, now I I want us to think about something. 40 different authors over a period of 1,700 years. And this book, and I'm, I'm hopefully going to help convince you of this this morning, this book all tells one story. It's not disconnected. It all tells one grand narrative. Now, the chances of that are absolutely impossible unless, unless there was one greater behind-the-scenes unfolding history. And that is what I want to show you today. And I didn't come up with this idea out of thin air. If, if I came up with the idea out of thin air, then it wouldn't be worth your time. But Jesus himself said in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. So we're going to look at a few of those stories, just a few. I don't have time to cover all of them. We're just going to look at a few. And we're going to start way back at the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first few chapters. We're going to look at the story of Adam and Eve. So in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And so he makes them male and female, and he puts them in a garden, and he says, Go, be fruitful, multiply. I want, you to, I want you to govern the earth. I want you to have dominion over all of the earth. And then he, um, he plants this tree in the middle of the garden. I'm going to read it. In Genesis chapter 2, 8 and 9, and then 16 and 17, it will be on the screen. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So right there, God says, If you go against me, your creator, if you choose to go your own way, it will end badly. It will end in death. And then it says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And this is Satan taking the form of a snake. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat, God said. You must not eat of it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. 
So Adam and Eve, the first human beings, are in the garden. They have this choice. Are we going to believe what God has said and follow him? Or are we going to believe what Satan is saying and follow him? You see, Satan was a created angel. And he decided that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be exalted. And so he started a rebellion. God threw him out of heaven. And he took a third of the angels with him. So when he did that, he started a rebellion. And when Adam and Eve chose to believe him, they, in effect, joined that rebellion. And the results were horrific. When they sinned, a curse fell on all of creation, including all of humankind. And every single person that's been born after them has been born under this curse, under the curse of sin. We see the effects of the curse of sin all over the place. All you have to do is watch the news. And so when they rebelled against God, sin entered the world. And we inherited that from our parents, Adam and Eve. It says in Romans 5, verse 12, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So just to be clear, it spread to us because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. We are under the curse. We are born in it. But it also, it also spread to us because we have sinned. We have all gone our own way. So we are guilty of sin ourselves. And therefore the curse is on us. And what it's saying is that Adam failed the test in the garden. And his disobedience is imputed to us or credited to us. But then you keep reading in Romans chapter 5 and it says, Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness, his death on the cross, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, that's Adam, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, that's Jesus, many will be made righteous. What that means is that when we put our faith in Jesus, just as Adam's disobedience was imputed to us, when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus' obedience is imputed to us. Adam was meant to point us to Jesus from the very first. Adam failed the test in the garden and his disobedience was imputed to us, but Jesus is the true and better Adam, and because he passed the test in the garden, his obedience gets imputed to us. And I'm going to fast forward. i got to go fast, and I'm going to cover all of these. We're going to fast forward in history to the record of Joseph. Now, Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was his favorite. And that's, that's not good for you if you're the favorite and you got a whole bunch of brothers. Okay? And now Jacob gave Joseph this coat of many colors. And that just made his brothers that much more angry with him. And not to mention the fact that Joseph had had some dreams that foretold that one day his brothers would bow down to him. And Joseph, not the smartest move, told his brothers about this dream. Okay, just a little tip. If you ever have a dream like that, don't tell your brothers. Okay? Um, Well, that didn't help his situation. And one day his brothers decide, you know what? Um, We're going to get rid of this guy. And so they take him by force, 
they rip his robe right off of him, and they sell him into slavery. They sell him to Egyptian slave traders. And then they take his robe, they cover it in blood, they go back to their father, and they say, we found this, Joseph's dead. Okay? So he is sold into slavery, he is separated from the father who loves him, and then you fast forward a little, a little ways, and it's not long before he's convicted of something that he didn't do. Okay? And, and so without a fair trial, they throw him into prison. So he's in prison. Things don't look like they're going well for him. You fast forward a little more. And he's in Egypt, and, and Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt, has this weird dream, and he needs to figure out what it means. He feels like it means something. And he gets word that Joseph has this special gift of being able to interpret dreams. God has given him this ability. So he says, you know what? Bring that guy to me. So Joseph comes and stands before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him his dream. And Joseph says, okay, God will tell you the meaning of this dream. He says, here's what this dream means. He says, we're going to have seven really good years. And then we're going to have seven really bad years. We're going to have seven years of famine. That's what God's telling you. So here's what I think we should do. He says, I think for seven years we need to store up food as much as we can. And then we'll be ready when the seven years of famine hit. And we'll be able to save many people. We'll be able to sell that food and save many people. Well, the Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph and by his wisdom that he says, you know what? I'm not going to send you back to prison I'm actually going to make you the most powerful man in all of Egypt, second only to me. And I'm going to put you in charge of this whole process. Okay, you, You're going to be in charge of buying this food, or I mean of get, storing up this food and then selling it when the famine hits. So Joseph becomes governor of all the land of Egypt. No one is more powerful than him except for Pharaoh. All right, and so now we fast forward a little bit more. Two years now into this famine. It's where we're going to pick up the story and I'm going to read it. Two years into the famine, Joseph's brothers who had betrayed him show up in Egypt to buy food. And they have no knowledge whatsoever of what has happened to Joseph. So Jacob's sons arrived. This is Genesis 42, starting in verse 5. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food. For the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. This would have been a great opportunity for Joseph to be like, boom, see? I told you my dream was going to happen, and there, but he doesn't. And in fact, this would have been the perfect opportunity for him to get revenge. I mean, these guys tried to destroy him, his own brothers. They betrayed him. This was his perfect chance. He could have, with a single word, had them done away with. But the incredible thing is that he doesn't. I mean, the incredible thing is that after all this time, he hasn't become bitter. He doesn't decide to get his revenge. He forgives his brothers Now we have to jump ahead a couple chapters. Genesis chapter 45, verse 4. 
Here he finally reveals his identity to his brothers. They still hadn't known who he was. He says, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and everything you own. I will take care of you there. So Joseph, here he has this opportunity to destroy those who try to destroy him, and yet he has mercy. He forgives them. And he says, you know what? You intended for evil. God used for good. His brothers betrayed him. His robe was taken from him. He was sold for the price of a slave, separated from his father who loved him. He was wrongly accused and thrown into prison without a fair trial. But at the end, God exalted him to a place of power. And then at the right hand of the king, Joseph forgave those who hated him and sold him. And he used his new power to save them. Joseph was meant to point us to Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed. Judas, one of his best friends, sold him to the religious leaders for the price of a slave. He too was wrongly accused and thrown into prison without a fair trial. His robe was stripped from him. He was condemned to die by crucifixion and on the cross. He was separated from his father who loved him. But in the end, God exalted him, raising him from the dead and giving him the place of power at his right hand. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of God forgives those who hated him, and he uses his power to save them from their sins. All right, we're going to jump forward. The story of David and Goliath. This is another one of those stories that you, if you're not fully convinced of the Bible's authenticity, you might have a hard time wrapping your mind around a giant of a man, right? Right now, I think our current world record is um, the tallest man who's ever lived was 8 foot 11. The Bible says that Goliath was 9 feet 6 inches tall. Not 9 feet 6 inches and lanky and awkward, but agile, a warrior. He was actually the champion of the Philistine army. And so we read this story of David. And most of the time we miss the real point of this story. And I'll get to that in just a second. David would one day become a great king, but before he was king, he was just a small shepherd boy. He was the youngest of his brothers, and his brothers went to battle, and so he stayed back and he took care of his father's sheep. One day, as his brothers are at war, his dad says, hey, I want you to take some food to your brothers. And so he goes, and at the time, the army of Israel, God's chosen people, are at war with the Philistines, and they're at a standstill. The Israelites are on one hill and the Philistines are on another. And they're at a standstill. And every morning, Goliath comes out into the valley. And he, he looks up at the Israelites and, he, and he, he says, come on. 
Somebody come fight me. He says, if you defeat me, we'll be your slaves. But if I defeat you, you'll be our slaves. So what do the Israelites do? Nothing. Because the guy is nine and a half feet tall. He's huge. And he's a champion. He's very experienced. He's been in a lot of battles. And he has never lost. That's what makes you a champion. And so nobody moves. I mean, who's going to take that guy? Well, David shows up with some food for his brothers, and he happens to be there as Goliath steps out, and he makes this challenge. And he hears this challenge, and he's appalled. And he goes, who is that guy? What is he thinking? And they're like, well, that's Goliath, and you know, right now, he's thinking he could kill all of us. And and he says, he's... He's defying, he's defying God's people, God's army. Who does he think he is taunting God's army? And that's, that's where we'll pick up this story. David says, I'll go fight this guy. I'll, I'll do it. And his brothers, you know, are trying to convince him, you just need to run along. You need to head on back and take care of the sheep. You don't belong here. You're crazy. Well, he goes before the king, King Saul, and he says, I'll, I'll fight that guy. He cannot win. He, he's, he's picking a fight that he can't win. God will be on my side. And so the king says, all right, nobody else has stepped up. So he gives him some armor to wear, and David puts it on, and he's like, no, nope, I can't move in this stuff. You know what? I'll go fight him with nothing but my shepherd's staff and my sling. So that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 17, 40 through 52. It says, He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd bag. Then armed with only his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, The Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle. And he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled, with his, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath. David used it to kill him and to cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. 
Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. Now many people believe that this story is primarily about us and the fact that we, if we just have enough courage, if we just have enough faith that we too can defeat our giants. But I believe this story is much, much bigger than that. I believe this story, just like all the other stories of the Old Testament, are pointing us to Jesus. You see, David, who would one day be king, a young man, a shepherd, he went out into a fight that wasn't his to fight. This wasn't his responsibility. He could have gone back. He could have just left, ignored the taunt, and gone back and and focused on the sheep. But he decided to fight a battle that wasn't his. He decided to go up against the giant that no one else could defeat. David was meant to point us to Jesus. See, this victory would lead to his eventual kingly rule over the people that he saved. David's victory became Israel's victory, though they never lifted a stone. Like David, Jesus as a young man would one day be exalted as the king of all kings, went out into a battle against a giant that no one was able to defeat. Our greatest enemy is sin. It's sin that condemns us and separates us from God. It's the giant that taunts us. But when Jesus went to the cross, just like David, walking onto the battlefield, he went on our behalf. Like David, Jesus fought for us. He defeated sin, proving his victory by raising from the dead three days later. Jesus is the true and better David, and his victory becomes our victory, though we never lifted a stone when we put our faith in him. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He was and is and always will be. He is the good shepherd, the good teacher, and our great high priest. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And all of the Bible and all of history has been about him. When we see that, we'll be captivated by him. It's all been leading to the cross because it's always been about Jesus. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. 
There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. So when I said that I wanted something for you, and what I wanted for you is I wanted you to see Jesus in a new light. That's what I meant. I meant that I want you to see that all of life is about Jesus. All of history has been about Jesus, and all of eternity is going to be about Jesus. And you were made to know him, to have a relationship with him. But like Adam and Eve, we too have gone our own way. We have decided to rebel against God. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. As an innocent man, he died in our place to make a way for us so that when we put our faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sin. We put our trust in him. Then our sins are paid in full on the cross. All of life is about him, and when we put our trust in him, we get new life. And I want to invite you this morning to put your trust in him. You have an opportunity. Maybe you came here not expecting to feel the way you're feeling. Maybe you came just to make someone happy, but your heart is pounding because you have seen Jesus in a new light. And if that's you, I want to invite you to put your trust in him. You don't have to do anything to earn favor with God. He's done it all. 
You don't have to clean your life up first. You don't have to be good enough. He was good enough for you. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And if you will put your trust in him, then right now you can have a new start and you can have a new life. And I can attest to that. And many in this room can attest to that fact. Maybe you have a hard time believing some of this. Believe this. My life has been radically changed. And many lives in this room have been radically changed, and you can't argue with that. So this morning, you have an opportunity to respond to this gospel, this good news. Right now, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to put your trust in Jesus, you can do that right now. You have an opportunity right now to start fresh. And there's no magic words. There's no ceremony. There's no ritual. You just be honest with God and you say, I want that. And I'm putting my trust in Jesus and I'll follow you. I'll turn from doing life my way and I will follow Jesus. And if you do that, and if your faith is genuine, then you will be saved. So right now, we're just going to sit silently for a moment and let you deal with God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you put your trust in Jesus just now for the very first time, I want you to do something bold. I want you just to look up at me and make eye contact with me. Thank you, so that I can know. Thank you. Thank you. In just a moment, I'm going to close us in prayer and then... um, we're going to stand and, and sing some more songs. And then I want, if you, if you made eye contact with me, if you put your trust in Jesus today, then I just want to talk to you. Um, I just want to, I want to be able to help you take those first steps as you follow Jesus. Um, we're happy for you if you decided to put your faith in Jesus today. We want to celebrate with you and we want to help you. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation freely offered to us by his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in this room, in individuals' hearts right now. And those who looked at me and those who didn't, Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for your word. God, we, we, we love you. We praise you and we lift up and exalt the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. We thank you for raising him from the dead, proving that he had the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now right now, we're going we're gonna to have an opportunity to respond. We're going to pass the buckets. If you filled out one of those connect cards, you can drop that in the bucket. Um, if you 
If you put your faith in Jesus, I want you to slip out after we stand and just come talk to me. If you feel led to give, to help us with this mission, you can do that right now. As we, as we want to plant more churches, you can help us to do that. And also, if you're interested in being baptized, we're going to have baptisms in a month. You can go ahead and, and write that on your connect card and drop that in the bucket. Because we want to talk to you. We want to, we want to um, get some resources in your hands. All right, let's stand and sing together.